This morning, our reading is from um, the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. <clears throat> Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that shines a light into our hearts, that feeds us with true food and strengthens us with your true life. So, Lord, we ask that you would now bless the preaching of your word, that your spirit would, through it, speak deeply to us and continue to sanctify us according to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me see then. Now, the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian today is Afghanistan. And since the, the U.S. troops withdrew uh, the country in 2021, the, the Taliban filled the vacuum. And now the, the Taliban are the guys who are running the country. And since then, it's been almost impossible for Christians to live freely. And if it's discovered that you have um, converted from Islam to Christianity, your family um, or your tribe is honor bound to either uh, put you to death or to disown you. And if you are spared from death, it's probably even a, a worse form of punishment because you live the rest of your life in shame. It's an honor shame culture and you're put in a, in a loony bin, in a madhouse because um, for um, the Taliban, it's seen as a form of insanity to leave Islam. Now, thankfully, here in South Africa, we enjoy religious liberty. And as Christians, we don't face any sort of state-sponsored persecution that we would find in a place like Afghanistan and North Korea. And, you know, the, the list goes on. But although there's, there's no overt persecution here today, what we are certainly beginning to feel is pressure. Okay, pressure from uh, the culture, which is increasingly becoming hostile to biblical Christianity. Now, perhaps 30 years ago, our culture shared a lot of um, our biblical values. Um, especially here in, in South Africa, it was was seen as a good and respectable and honorable thing to, to be a part of a church, to go to church every Sunday. Um, the culture would have affirmed a broadly biblical sexual ethic. 
Um, and we know that this is certainly not the case today. There's great pressure um, that is being exerted upon the church and upon Christians to affirm fundamentally unbiblical things, whether it's sex before marriage or the LGBT agenda or the feminist movement or uh, woke values. Um, if you don't not seem to conform to these things and even to participate in the, these things, to bow the knee to these things, well, you face the increasing risk of, of facing scorn and, and ridicule and uh, the risk of, of being cancelled. And so there's a great temptation then to abandon our biblical convictions and join the world on these issues in order to avoid paying um, what can be quite a high price. Now, the church that Paul is writing to in Philippi was also facing pressure from the surrounding Greco-Roman uh, pagan culture to conform. And in, in the first sermon in Philippians, we, we looked at this, that um, uh, Paul had a personal experience of facing this pressure, not only pressure, but real persecution. Yeah, when he and Silas arrived for the first time to plant the church in, in the city in Acts 16, well, what happened? Well, they got arrested for preaching the gospel. So Paul understands the hostility that this church in Philippi is experiencing um, from its surrounding culture. And so now he, he's writing to them to encourage them to be steadfast in living a life of gospel faithfulness in the midst of this cultural pressure. And so he encourages them to see that suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift. And therefore he urges them to stand firm in living a life that is worthy of the gospel. So just two points this morning. Firstly, a worthy life. And secondly, the gift of suffering. So first off, a worthy life from Verse 27, let's read it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in the midst of the, the pressure and the persecution that, that's facing the Philippian church, Paul urges them not to buckle to this pressure to conform, but to instead live their lives in a manner that, that's worthy of the gospel. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word that's used here, that Paul chooses to use here for the phrase living a worthy life is a very specific word. In fact, it's only used two times in the New Testament. And it's a word that describes how one is to live a life worthy of a good citizen. So it's describing the way in which one is to behave that enhances the reputation of your city or your country. And so Paul deliberately uses this word because the Philippians would have understood the implication of the citizen imagery. Hey, why is this? We also looked at this in, in, the, in the first sermon on, on the Philippians. Um, Philippi was a colony of Rome. 
Okay, meaning that every inhabitant of Philippi was granted Roman citizenship. Now, what we need to understand is that while the, the Roman Empire was vast and it in, you know, encompassed the whole of the Mediterranean region, you were not automatically granted Roman citizenship by virtue of being born in the Roman Empire. Okay, we are born, if you're born in South Africa, you're guaranteed to get your South African citizenship. That wasn't the case back in the Roman Empire. Um, that was not an automatic privilege. Okay, you were only granted citizenship to the Roman Empire if you were a member of a prominent family um, or if you were rich enough to, to buy your citizenship. Okay, so the, the fact that Philippi was a Roman colony where everyone was granted Roman citizenship was, was, was quite a rare thing. So to be a Roman citizen was, was something very prestigious. Hey, you, you, you had certain privileges. Hey, you paid less tax. Hey, you had certain rights to justice, to a fair trial. And we see that with Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. Um, and he went, he wasn't, you know, if you were caught for some misdemeanor in Rome and you were a nobody, if you were a pleb, okay, you know, there was little chance of you getting justice. You were just probably chucked in a dungeon and they forgot about you. But Paul being a Roman citizen, he was afforded a, a, a fair trial. And so that's why we see him in Acts 24 going through the processes, appearing before the magistrates. And, um, you know, he was entitled to that as, as a Roman citizen. But along with citizenship's privileges and rights also came responsibilities. So as a Roman citizen, you had the duty to live in an honorable manner. You had to uphold the dignity of Rome, the dignity of being a part of this glorious empire and to embody some sense of, of patriotic pride for Rome. So it, you were expected to live in, a, in an honorable way that you understood to be representing Rome itself. Now, knowing that the Philippians understand the implications of citizenship because they are Roman citizens, okay, we, we see that he tells them later in the letter, in chapter 320, that their true citizenship is in heaven. So now he's preempting that and he's saying to them, now as citizens of heaven representing a city that's even more infinitely more glorious than Rome, they are therefore to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does this look like? Well, as citizens of heaven... We are to live lives reflecting the nature of our citizenship, lives that are worthy of the gospel. And so we've got to live in the light of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. We've redeemed, been redeemed by God through what Christ has done for us on the cross by paying the penalty that we all deserve for our sins and granting us the forgiveness of our sins, this gift of completely undeserved grace. Of giving us what we, we don't deserve. And so our only response to, to having received this incredible free gift is to live a life that's worthy of it. 
And that is therefore to actively put to death sin in our lives, to mortify our sin, to, to flee temptation, not to, to run towards it. Because our lives should be noticeably different from the pagans around us. Not only are we to flee the temptation to sin, but we are to actively walk in what God has for us. And, and that is to love him, to abide in Christ, to, to walk in his commands, be obedient to his word, bringing glory to God in everything that we do um, and receive the, the sanctifying work of the spirit in being made more Christ-like. So what is the reason then that Paul gives for living a life worthy of the gospel? Well, the rest of verses 27 and 28 tell us. So that, okay, here's our purpose. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what's the reason that Paul gives that we are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? Well, the reason is that we are to stand firm together, united as the church against a common enemy. The common enemy is those who oppose the gospel, those who are, are seeking to put pressure on us as believers to conform to, to unbiblical ways. And because the Philippians were experiencing such pressure and persecution for their faith, Paul encourages them to remain united against this common enemy, not be pitted against each other, because that would just weaken the church. So Paul talks about unity in two ways. So the first um, form of unity he encourages us as the church in is a unity in our shared belief of the gospel. In verse 27, it talks about being in one mind, or the Greek is one soul, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So it matters what we believe. Hey, we are not to just embrace the, you know, the various waves and winds of our culture, the spirit of this age. We're not to embrace the relativism of our time. That, you know, as long as we're just good people, you know, all roads lead to God. As long as you just love everyone, you know, it's all going to be okay. But it doesn't, you know, but if you believe you know, Islam will get you to heaven or Hinduism will get you to heaven or your good works will get you to heaven. It's all fine. Okay, no, we, we can't have unity like that. Because okay, true unity can only be found in truth and in, in, in the truth of the gospel. We also can't have, have um, unity with, with false gospels. Okay, the, the prosperity gospel, very prevalent in, in, in our context that teaches that God, God's will for your life is that you're always healthy and wealthy. Yeah, we believe that to be a false gospel. You see, especially in a text like today, is that that's simply not true. 
So we cannot find unity with those who believe unbiblical things. A true unity as the church is found only in holding fast to the true gospel that was handed down from the apostles that we have here in God's word. And the true gospel is that Christ, truly God and truly man, died for our sins. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, fulfilling the promises of scripture, granting us the forgiveness of sins, this gift of grace to be received by faith alone in Christ. This is the heart of our faith. This is the life-changing gospel that continues to transform us till our very last day as believers in Christ. If we get rid of that, we've got nothing. We call to, Paul's calling us, the word of God is calling us to find our unity, first and foremost, in our common belief in the gospel. So unity in the gospel. Secondly, unity in our shared holiness. So from verse 27, we're called to stand firm in one spirit. Now there's a direct link between true belief and practice. Hey, true belief should always result in true practice. Um, evidence of our belief in the true gospel will result in a life that bears fruit for the Lord. And the, the church finds collective unity. Well, the church, church finds unity in, the, in this collective commitment to holiness and understanding that unrepentant sin in the church starts to poison and, and weaken the whole church. In the Old Testament church, Israel was commanded to, as Deuteronomy 17, 7 says, to purge the evil from their midst. If you want to know what that entailed, well, go and read Deuteronomy 17 in your quiet time tomorrow. Similarly, in the New Testament, we call to practice church discipline. Okay, we see in 1 Corinthians 6 to confront those who would call themselves Christians, but continue in high-handed, unrepentant sin, and to excommunicate them if they repeatedly choose not to listen to these warnings. Yeah, because sin left unchecked in, the church, unchecked in the church is going to affect everyone through disunity, through impurity. And instead, we are called to be united through living lives that glorify God in holiness. Now, the result of being courageously united in our faith and practice is that we, as you see in verse 28, our opponents are shown up. Okay, those who oppose the gospel, when faced with a courageously united church, are starkly reminded of their condemnation. Verse 28 says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Hey, their own sins condemn their consciences, and this is exactly the reason why we are to expect such vicious opposition to the gospel. It's not something to be unexpected. It's a part of how it is. But on the other hand, we can be encouraged through this because a united front in the face of, of opposition is evidence then 
of our promised salvation, that indeed God has promised to deliver us from our enemies, forgive us our sins, and grant us salvation in Christ. So this brings us to a second point, the gift of suffering, from the last two verses, 29 to 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So in the face of persecution and opposition and, and pressure for the sake of Christ, Paul tells the Philippian church that it's not only their, their faith in Christ that is granted from God, but indeed their suffering, just like the suffering he is experiencing in jail, is also granted as a gift from God. Now, it's, it's interesting that the, the Greek word that's used for, for granted here, it's from the word charis, and charis is, is, is grace. So the implication here is that both faith in Christ is a gift of grace, you know that to be true, and suffering for the sake of Christ is also a gift of grace given by God himself. So how is this so? Well, let's first look at faith in Christ as a gift. Well, none of us came to faith in Christ out of our own accord. Okay, none of us chose Christ out of our own free will. Why is that? Well, the truth is that actually we were unable to do so because we were dead in our sins. We didn't, Romans 3, 11, we didn't even have the capacity to seek God. And so what this means then is that our faith in Christ is not something that, that we brought about and then were able to, to choose God. No. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5 says that it was because of God's rich mercy and his love for us that while we were still dead in our trespasses, that he made us alive together with Christ. I need to understand the gravity of it just to show you the beauty of God's grace here that while we were still dead and not even seeking God, it was God who started to first work in us by the power of his spirit. Hey, God made the first move. God started to work in us in order that we were able to have faith in Christ. Okay, God had to raise us from death to life. And so um, this uh, faith to believe in Christ is itself a gift from God. It doesn't originate in us. God enabled us to, to have faith in Christ as a gift. And this is what Ephesians 2 verse 8 says. Hey, regeneration precedes faith. Hey, he raises us from death to life first, and then we are empowered to have faith in Christ. And so it's showing us that salvation is all God's work. 
including the very faith to believe in Jesus. It's a gracious, it's an undeserving gift from God. Now, in the similar way, okay, suffering for Christ is also a gift. So as much as our faith in Christ is, is a gift from God, so suffering is also a gift. Now, this can sound utterly counterintuitive to a lot of us. Okay, well, first of all, we must be clear that looking at the context is not talking about all suffering. Because we know that it's possible to suffer because of our own stupidity. (laughs) It is possible to suffer from the fruit of our own sinful choices. Now, while God, God can certainly use those times to work in a redemptive way in our lives. Absolutely. Because we know he uses all things, even our own stupidity, <laughs> to work some good. Thankfully, he does that. Okay? But here, let's be strict to the context. It's talking about suffering specifically for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Now, our tendency is to avoid suffering at all costs, especially in our consumer comfort driven culture and we see something as we see suffering as inherently negative we don't see it as a virtue the culture certainly doesn't see it as a virtue so therefore it can be said counterintuitive for us to hear that suffering for christ is a gracious gift from god just like our faith in christ well how is this possible well, we need to be clear that throughout the New Testament, I mean, do it's an interesting exercise. Do a word search and suffering in the New Testament. The results will shock you. Yeah, throughout the New Testament, suffering for the sake of the gospel is seen as a virtue. Just a couple of scriptures here. 2 Timothy 1.8. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Why are we to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel? Well, the reason for this is that God uses especially suffering to sanctify us. He uses suffering to wean us off our childish, sinful ways. He uses suffering to make us more dependent on Christ and his grace and to ultimately make us more like Christ himself. Because we know that Jesus knew what it was to suffer, to really suffer. He suffered deeply. He was rejected by those who were closest to him, even his own family. He experienced ridicule from his own tribe, his own people. He experienced betrayal from some of his disciples. He experienced affliction from the enemy during his time on earth. And all the ultimate suffering that he experienced was the horror of the crucifixion. Where he experienced hell on the cross, the fullness of hell 
on the cross. The experience of his own father turning his face away from him as he took upon himself our sins. So when we face rejection for the sake of Christ, whether it's ridicule from family or friends because we don't join them in their sins or scorn when we tell others about the gospel or whenever we pay a price for our faith, brothers and sisters, we need to know that God is granting you this as a gift. Because you are sharing in a very small way something that Jesus also shared in. And so through it, you're becoming more like him. You're becoming sanctified. You're becoming more holy. And the spirit of God is working in your life. And you are growing closer to the Lord in love. And that is an incredible, gracious gift from God. And so this is precisely why Romans 5, 3 to 5 declares more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's wrap this up. Now, all of us face some sort of pressures every week from the world around us to conform to it, to to blend in, because our natural response, natural tendency is to want to avoid rejection. We want to avoid suffering. It's certainly easier to go with the flow. To cave into temptation to sin. And especially when everyone around us thinks there's nothing wrong with it. But if you carry down, carry on down this path outside of Christ, you will sell your soul. You will become like Paul's friend Demas. In 2 Timothy 4.10, abandoned the narrow road of a life obedient to Christ, to the easy path of falling in love with the present world. There's a strong pull and temptation to this. And it's easy to lose sight and lose perspective of what is going on here. You think you will gain now, whether it's pleasure or, or love or acceptance. And yes, you will probably gain these things. But ultimately, you will lose your soul. And that is to lose everything. Because eternity is at stake here. As 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So in the face of this pressure, brothers and sisters, stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Understand that suffering is a part of the deal if we... In Christ, not only is it a part of the deal, but it's actually a gift and a privilege to be able to share in the sufferings of Christ. Not that we in any way contribute to our salvation. You understand that this is a gift of grace because it's, it's Jesus' sufferings that save us. On our own, it's impossible to get right with God. 
And we've all fallen short of God's glory. We have all sinned. And our tendency is to wander away in these sins. But because God is gracious, he comes down and meets us in Christ. And though we all deserve to be crushed for our sins, Jesus was crushed in our place. He endured suffering meant for us. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So bearing our sin and shame on the cross, rising again to life on the third day, Jesus forgives us our sins and reconciles us in peace to God. So, friends, brothers and sisters, repent and trust in Jesus, our suffering servant. Trust in the one who was crushed for your iniquities so that you could have peace. Trust in the one who promises to be right there with you as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Who sanctifies you through your suffering. Who empowers you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And trust in the one who promises to carry you to the end. When on that day he will raise you in glory to be with him forever in his presence. Amen. Let's pray.